Hey, everybody. First, I know it feels like we jump right in and there's not much catching up or lighthearted conversations, but I really wanted to respect Mark's time and make sure that we covered a very important topic as much as we possibly could in this episode. Also, I know that we mentioned it in our conversation, but I want to point this out again. If you or someone you love is struggling with depression, any form of mental health issues, or if you or a loved one may be having difficulties that lead you to believe that neurodiversity or the autism spectrum might be the reason, first, this is not due to your sin, and this is not your fault. Second, your struggles or differences do not disqualify you from full participation and inclusion in the church. And lastly, I, as a pastor, am not a medical professional. Neither is Rich, and neither are most pastors. So we want to encourage you, if you have medical struggles and concerns, to seek medical professionals, guilt-free and shame-free. Here's my conversation with Mark Quinn, and I hope you find it helpful. Thanks. Welcome to the Real Life Roundtable podcast. Conversations about culture, Christianity, church, and community, and where all those intersect as we explore real life with one another. The Real Life Roundtable is a production of Real Life Community Church in Portage, Indiana. For more information, follow us at RLCC Life on Facebook or visit reallifecc.org. Hey, everybody. It is Ben here. Um, Rich is actually out. He's preparing for a retreat that our district here in the Church of Nazarene does, and he's trying to get some stuff taken care of before he heads out there. So I'm flying solo as far as the hosting, but I'm also joined here at the Real Life Roundtable uh, virtually via Zoom. Um, Mark Quinn, so you want to say hi, Mark? Hey. So we're going to get into what um, Mark is all about and his ministry journey and where he is at right now in his life in Michigan. But first, I wanted to share a little devotional thought right away. Um, and maybe me and Mark can go back and forth a little bit, talk about what this means for us. Uh, I'm reading through this new book of Sky Jatani's. It's called What If Jesus Was Serious About the Church? This is the, the third book in this series. It's a devotional series all about taking the words of Jesus seriously and taking them to heart. The paragraph I wanted to read says this about the cosmic plan of God's redemption. It says the New Testament repeatedly emphasizes the cosmic scale of Jesus' sacrifice. Paul said through the cross, God has reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. In his most extensive articulation of the gospel, Paul reiterates Jesus' intent to rule over all things. No less than eight times, the cosmic scope of Paul's gospel fits with the Jewish vision of God, he inherited from the Hebrew scriptures that declare in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The next verse does not say that God then retired into full-time ministry. And yet this is how many churches function. We assume that God cares about redeeming souls, but not bodies. We think he wants a thriving church, but cares nothing about a flourishing school. We believe God wants the gospel to preached, but is indifferent about whether a hospital is built. When the church narrowly defines what breaks God's heart, it ends up producing narrow disciples who do not recognize the reign of Christ over every part of our lives in every atom of creation. And that kind of struck me because, I mean, I think it's as a pastor, we're told and trained and taught to win souls, right? And then when you, when you see the words of Jesus and you see the plan of, of scripture is to redeem all creation, it's kind of like, okay. That means a lot more than getting people to pray a prayer, right? Yeah, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm sure you had this experience. I grew up, the mo two most important and valuable like vocations you could choose as a Christian were like missionary, that was number one. And mm -hmm. then beneath that was like a pastor. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you're really suicidal or something like that, you might go for uh, uh, you know, like youth pastor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you yeah. really, really wanted to get into the trenches yeah. and serve If you God, really like, wanted to be a martyr. Yeah, getting yeah. kids ministry or youth ministry, but uh, you know, and and you valued maybe some other vocations if uh, if they could achieve a certain level of success and then give back generously to those things. But mm -hmm. beyond that, there wasn't uh, a, like a robust kind of vision of what it meant to have this 
multi-layered and uh, dynamic uh, options of vocation to, to yeah. live out your Christian faith as, as ministry, as like, you know, kingdom initiative. It, it just wasn't there. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that it seems like that started to shift maybe a little bit in, in, in my pastoral journey. I've, I've heard more people talking about, uh, you know, ministry outside the walls and, and, uh, you know, incorporating their, their Christian life into their secular vocations and things of that nature and, and looking at those through a redemptive lens. But uh, I think there's still some progress to be made on that front. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's part of my story is that I, although, you know, I had felt God tugging at my heart longer than I actually listened to him, obviously, but I was in construction for 13 years before I actually left that to fully be involved in, in vocational ministry full time. So there was always that tension, even for me, it was like, okay, so when, when have I made it? Have I made it when I become full-time in ministry or have I made it when I've seen all 24 hours in the day as ministry? Like where, where is that? Where is, where's the finish line? What, what is the right. success standard? And then when you become a pastor, you're given a whole new set of standards and markers that dictate what success looks like. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, but yeah, I mean, I know firsthand of the, the confusion. And then when I'm talking to people in in that secular job and they're like, wait, you're a pastor. Like what, why? And then does that mean that now I have to not swear around you anymore? Like, what does that mean for me now, now that I'm working around this pastor? And it's like, yeah. well, that's not exactly what it, how it works. <laughs> right. But it's definitely like, if you want to be really holy, you need to ascend to being a pastor or a priest. Yeah. And it's like, that's, that's a hard bar to set. And then also what happens when we're all full-time pastors like what yeah. <laughs> is that the <Yeah>. goal <laughs> right well I, I like what sky said there like you know the church learning to see that you know souls are important bodies are important yeah you know yeah um, you know pe people are important planet is important like these things are inseparable and uh you know i know, I know nt Wright has had a, a lot of influence on, mm -hmm. on younger pastors and his vision of just creation redeemed and the fullness of that yeah. uh, has helped kind of reshape our imagination of what ministry can look like. And, uh, and I know that's been a big part of my journey. So, yeah. And it's interesting how that works because N.T. Wright is not a young guy. He's not this new <laughs> trendy young guy that came out of nowhere. It's almost right. like for a while, all of a sudden, for whatever reason, the Western church kind of ignored him. And now all of a sudden there's this resurgence yeah. of like, Hey, maybe we should see what that, that old Tom Wright has to say about this. And right. Like, oh, he actually knows what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so share your story, Mark. Um, you're somebody that's been involved in ministry. You're um, kind of doing an exciting and interesting venture that caught my yeah. attention. So tell us a little bit about yeah. yourself. Yeah. I don't, I don't know where you want me to start. And, and I know like, you know, there's a lot of uh, pieces of my story that all kind of led me to the moment I'm in it at, at the present. Um, you know, I've been a Jesus follower since I was in high school um, and, and came into that through uh, Bible quizzing of all places, <laughs> hmm. uh, chasing girls, you know, which is a great, great uh, attractional ministry model. Uh, yeah. but competition uh, you know, and girls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was an excellent, uh, you know, kind of, um, atmosphere for God to get my attention <laughs> and, and it worked. And, uh, you know, I, I went from there, uh, felt a call really early on in my, um, Christian journey to, to ministry, to, to preaching in particular, and uh, initially saw that, uh, working itself out through youth ministry. So I spent about 10 years in youth ministry. Uh, and at some point uh, there towards the end of that journey felt uh, that call shift to work with uh, adults uh, more directly in kind of a senior pastoral, you know, head pastoral kind of role and uh, transitioned into that about 2009 uh, and uh, spent 12 years in pastoral ministry. Uh, during, during that time, I, I had, uh, of youth ministry and pastoral ministry, I had five, got married, had five kids, 
Yeah. Uh, my oldest just left for college. So um, I turned 40 this year and sent my first kid off to college. And it feels really surreal uh, to be at that place in life. But uh, uh, we have five children. My, my oldest is 18. My youngest is eight. Uh, they're both boys. And I have three girls in between. Um, and they're all wonderful kids. Uh, and, um, and maybe I can share a little bit about uh, them a little later as we get into our yeah. conversation. But uh, during my time in pastoral ministry, which I, I, I loved, you know, I, I love working with people. Uh, I love teaching and preaching. Uh, I love being present with people through the, their, their hardest moments and their you know, highest joys. It, there's just nothing like it. Uh, and, and just being alongside people on their journey as they come to know God, as they find freedom, as they see their lives change. Uh, it's, it was very, very rewarding. Uh, about four, five years into our uh, pastoral ministry, uh, coinciding with the birth of my youngest daughter, <clears throat> my wife, who had always had some kind of underlying depression. Mm-hmm. Something physiologically changed with the birth of of Libby, and uh, what was always there got much much worse. Mm. And so, uh, about five years into pastoral ministry, uh, life changed for us in a pretty dramatic way. Uh, we couldn't uh, do ministry the way we had, we had done it before. She couldn't participate in the way she had before, and and that kind of launched us into. Uh, a journey of trying to figure out right how do we how do we do this with this new dynamic? Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, she she said I could go ahead and share this. She's diagnosed with bipolar two. Uh, it took uh, seven years to get that diagnosis. Okay. Um, bipolar two. She's wanted me to clarify uh, is not like the the manic depressant kind of really really high highs and really really low lows uh, that that's bipolar one mm-hmm. bipolar two you just have a con like your normal is low uh, you're kind of in a constant depressive state and your high days are what we would call normal days for people who don't uh, suffer from some kind of uh, mental illness. Okay. And so um, it took, like I said, seven years and uh, multiple doctors and a lot of medications uh, to get that diagnosis. But um, through that process, uh, you know, our ministry really had to change. We stepped out of ministry for uh, a year during the really kind of dark period uh, where everything was seemed to be like at a peak and because it was just overwhelming. It was just mm-hmm. utterly overwhelming. And uh, we can talk about this more a little bit later, but the pressures, uh, the expectations uh, of church participation, especially for a pastoral family. Right. Uh, and we had we had a great church. I don't want to I don't want to dog the church. We had a great church. They were super loving, very supportive. Uh, when I resigned, uh, I was due a sabbatical. They gave me seven weeks uh, salary as a send off. Uh, and said, you, you had this coming. We want to send you out well. So I, like, I, I really want to say like the church did uh, an excellent job caring for us yeah. uh, in that season of life. But it was still, we had no frame of reference. We, we, we were utterly unprepared. They were utterly unprepared. We just felt like we had to step out. Uh, we did get back into ministry for four years after that. Um, trying to see like from a, from a different place, is this something that we can do, um, you know, after the diagnosis and some medication changes and, and ultimately came to the decision that full-time vocational ministry probably was not the best location for our family. Uh, so I started uh, back into school in my mid thirties uh, for, I feel you. Business. I feel you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, full-time pastoring, full-time schoolwork, and homeschooling five kids. Uh, I don't recommend that as uh, a healthy um, schedule. <laughs> but, Tell us about uh, your dozens what, of hobbies that you were able to fit in. There too. Yeah, yeah. I had I had one respite during all that time that was uh, November, uh, October, November deer season. 
Okay. And uh, more about just being out of the house and in the woods, which is extremely therapeutic. Yeah. Uh, to just sit and and listen to nature for hours, you know, um, it it will do a lot of healing. <laughs> you can pray a lot. You can read a lot. You can just listen and soak in a lot. Um, and so that was kind of my my respite during that time. But uh, yeah, went back to school with the intention of finishing that degree. And then sometime after that, transitioning out of the pastoral ministry uh, into probably something in the business finance world is what I was looking at. Um, around that same time that we were making that choice, our youngest daughter, um, Libby, we began to have uh, a lot of behavioral issues with her. Um, when we just got back into ministry, a lot of uh, tantrums and meltdowns. And uh, we started to explore what was what was happening here. This was not normal. There was no trauma that we were aware of or anything like that. Like, where did this come up, come from? And uh, initially had a ADHD diagnosis. Um, and then the pandemic hit and that kind of put a pause on on medical care for a lot of people. And it did for mm -hmm. us too. Uh, and then fast forward to the end of kind of the lockdowns and everything like that. Uh, we were finally able to get to see a doctor and have um, an ASD autism spectrum disorder assessment. And uh, she received a diagnosis of being on the spectrum and some things began to click uh, for us and make sense. Uh, for where we were at. Um, at the same time, my wife was going back to work and got in, into uh, doing ABA therapy uh, and, and began to connect with the Heart to Heart uh, that is in Coldwater, uh, the, the parent organization, uh, or first location, really, and connected me with the owner there. Uh, they became friends and, and we got to know one another. And when Christy asked, uh, uh, let, told Sarah that she was opening up a, another center in uh, Three Rivers, Michigan, and asked if I would be interested in uh, heading that up from the, the ground floor as the office manager. And, and the two of us kind of working together, Sarah and I working together at the center um, to, to serve children with uh, emotional behavioral disabilities. And uh, I had uh, a semester and a half of school left and uh, thought, you know, God, is this, is this you opening a door here for us to transition out of pastoral ministry, uh, to use the skills that I had been learning in, in uh, my degree, and, and also to connect to our heart that was growing towards just like serving and being involved in the autism community and the uh, uh, disability community. Through, through our experience of, of Libby and Sarah's experience with uh, working with ABA therapy. And so we prayed about that decision. And in uh, December of last year, we, we made the call and said, yeah, we'll, we'll step out in faith. And it was a, a faith venture uh, that the center had at that point, no building, uh, no clients, uh, and we had no uh, housing options. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, God, you're going to have to put some pieces together in a hurry if, mm -hmm. if we're going to make this move. And, uh, and, and we lived 50 miles from the location. So gas five, $5 a gallon was not looking like commuting was an option, <laughs> Yeah, but, um, and God, God moved mountains. I mean, uh, we were able to find and close on a house in a month, uh, you know, never being homeowners and stepping into a business that was less than a year old uh, and the bank still loaned us money. So, I, they, you know, uh, we found a home that in the crazy housing market was um, like a miracle that, that fit our family's need and was in our budget. Uh, and uh, we found a, a, a location for the center uh, that was perfect. And within, uh, within a month of making the decision, we were, we were open, opening the center to uh, receive clients about a month and a half from that time. So just to give you a, a kind of a window 
Yeah. And uh, we stepped out of full-time vocational ministry, which was all I had known for, I mean, with the, with the exception of that brief hiatus uh, for the last 16 years of my life and into something that we had never done before. And it's been so rewarding. Yeah. And I think that it speaks a little bit to what we were saying about God's desires to redeem all things, because I've heard similar stories of how God miraculously provides with housing and with a location and with the means and the the calling and the direction all tied to, like you said earlier, missionaries or pastors. Yeah. But the way you described your journey into this new venture is God providing a miracle, not only for you guys, but for the people that you serve, but it's not within the context of the four walls of the church. It's actually right. God, God provided you a miraculous way to step out of vocational ministry, which you wouldn't think that that would be the storyline. Yeah. And also with the, the acknowledgement that he didn't miraculously give you a journey to be a billionaire either. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I think I think I can say no, I don't, from I don't, our relationship I don't think... that this isn't a venture for for building wealth. Let's put it right. that way. Right. Um, and we had our conversation with our last interview with Amy Fox from Hands of Hope. And it's the similar thing where they were in vocational pastoral ministry as a family and God directed them out of that because he knew that there were needs that weren't being met those needs that we talked about in sky's book about, you know, hospitals, about caring for people and specifically like, let's turn the conversation a little bit to the people that you're serving. Mm -hmm. Um, even within your family story with Sarah and with Libby, the church models. And we talked a little bit about how thankfully that's changing. There's a lot of training and there's a lot of development for how to get us to articulate the gospel in the yeah. church, there's not to this point a whole lot of teaching to train us for how to handle the realities of the human brain. Yeah. Um, share your experiences being in pastoral ministry and out of it and having a family that deals with all of those dynamics. Yeah. So um, I, you know, when, when Sarah uh, began to experience her uh, experience of mental illness. Uh, I had, I just had no context for that other than I had always, maybe not explicitly been taught, but it had kind of just been the assumption that uh, was all around that mental health, mental illness was somehow our fault. Mm-hmm. Um, e- either, either we weren't having enough faith. Uh, did you stop doing your devotions? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, are you just, are you just focusing on the wrong things? Like, you know, can't you just think, you know, uh, about, uh, you know, Paul talks about, uh, you know, what is or whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is praiseworthy, right, right, right. like you know, dwell on those things. Can't you? Can't you just do a little bit of the Philippians thing? Cast your anxieties. Yeah, on cast your anxieties on the Lord. He will lift you up. And so, like you know, all these all these one liners from Scripture uh, that had kind of just created this uh, assumption that uh, mental illness was was either either a sin to be repented of. Uh, somewhere in your life that, you know, like the David thing, like my bones were, were in mm-hmm. agony because, because of Bathsheba, you know, so there must be some underlying sin issue or uh, a failure of just being a good disciple. Like you had, you know, somehow um, an interruption or gotten off track with your spiritual practices and habits. Mm-hmm. And, and that was, you know, my, my assumption. I mean, honestly, and, uh, you know, I can remember, you know, much to my shame and, and ignorance, having those kind of conversations with Sarah very early on, like just trying to figure out, not, not, a, not, not in a judgmental sense. I was just trying to figure out with the tools that I had and the story that I was given, um, how I could help her best and how we could help her. And, and that was repeated and mirrored. Um, and, a thousand different interactions with the church 
Uh, and again, from from a group of people, I don't want to I don't want to dog the church because they were a group of people who loved us and loved us well. Right. And, and we're just trying to make sense of that. And so same thing when when Libby received her diagnosis uh, for, for autism. It was it was not something I had any personal experience with. Um, come to find out in both those cases, I, I knew all kinds of people who had personal experiences with both mental illness and uh, disability within their family. It just wasn't talked about. There was right. no right. conversation. It was, it was uh, something that it was seen as you a know, skeleton to keep in a closet when exactly. it's a part of somebody's identity. Absolutely. That, that is an excellent way to say it. And, um, and that, that, was our, that was our experience. Um, and, and, and it was also our experience as we be, like, made the decision uh, after the first couple of years uh, uh, of Sarah's uh, experience beginning, we made the decision that instead of trying to deal with this behind the scenes, uh, that we were going to kind of be transparent, uh, whether that meant transparent with the church board and people in the church, uh, transparent with our family. Uh, Sarah's got a beautiful uh, gift for words and she would make status posts. And so transparent on Facebook, mm-hmm. which is a, a dangerous place to be transparent on, but <laughs> Uh, you know, that we made, the, we made the decision just to kind of bring that aspect of our lives into the open. And uh, we're utterly surprised at the number of people who came out of, out of the woodwork, kind of out of the shadows to uh, some of them publicly, some of them privately in DMs or conversations, uh, share their story of similar experience. And that began to really propel us into rethinking the uh, assumptions, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, throwing those old assumptions out and trying to think about uh, mental health and neurodiversity and disability from uh, a different perspective. And um, it's been, it's been a journey. I don't consider myself a master and that yeah. I have a lot of loose thoughts, but um, kind of a, a growing kind of clarity over how to how to think about those things and it's so it's so hard to get beyond those false perceptions because i mean in, in, we've, we've experienced it in my household in my life i mean when yeah. hillary has had, she, i mean she has her own story to tell as far as lifelong struggles that she's had with certain mm-hmm. mental health things but it was amplified at the the birth of our daughter isla who was born premature by two mm-hmm. months, spent a month in NICU. So if you think postpartum depression is hard when it's at a normal level, think about it with somebody who already has depression issues yeah. and who has to experience the trauma of the birth situation not playing out the way that you envisioned in your mind. And when we were trudging through that, like like you said, the only references I had to go back to in my mind are this has to be some kind of spiritual thing. And it wasn't even intentional and it wasn't negative and it wasn't me looking down on Hillary. It was just, I just am ill-equipped. I don't know. You have to first get to the place where you understand that this is not a spiritual issue, that this is a brain issue, that this is a chemical issue to then even start that journey of trying to learn more. And I mean, it to be somebody who's involved in ministry and have to go through that, there is that level of expectation of, am I failing in some way? Or are we yeah. failing in some way? Or are we going to be perceived as failing? Because like you said with Sarah, like she, they didn't diagnose a cure. They diagnosed what she's going through. They, yeah. they, they, you now have an understanding of her brain and you can move forward in that information. But that doesn't mean that you now have this spiritual prescription to solve it. And that's the hard thing when the church, whether intentionally or unintentionally, does give us a view, especially in the Western church, of what Christian perfection here on earth is. Mm -hmm. There are so many people that can't fit that, and it's not because they're not trying. It's because we set the standard based on somebody who's neurotypical, who's generally the majority, who's generally 
affluent in some way. If we if we set that as the standard, there are so many marginalized people that find themselves on the outside looking in, hiding those skeletons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, maybe maybe thinking a little bit about how does how does the church um, how can the church respond to people who are already present? I right. mean, you know, the reality is they're they're already present uh, either in our church communities or um, kind of peripheral to our church ministries through extended families, uh, people that we work with, uh, you know, having, having a, a different um, frame of reference for them. Uh, yeah, I, I was thinking about the story. I'm, I'm reading a, a book, uh, Disability in the Church, um, mm. Lamar Hardwick. Okay. And uh, he, he, he's a, a pastor who's on the spectrum, got his diagnosis uh, in his uh, 30s uh, after, you know, kind of uh, realizing that some, something was, um, he was having a difficulty relating to people and, uh, and all, the, all the people around him who had maybe had criticisms uh, of his, uh, you know, way of interacting you know, couldn't be wrong, that, that there must be something different about him. Uh, he, he tells um, uh, a couple of scriptures that uh, he brings out in his book that um, one I'm sure we're familiar with, and, and you know, it should be obvious, but uh, the story of the uh, man who was born blind in John uh, and the disciples want to know who sinned. Mm. You know, was, was it this man or, or was it his parents who sinned that he was born blind? And, and Jesus says, of course, neither, but this, this was that the, the work of God could be manifest in him. And he makes the comment that, you know, we need, we need to shift from, you know, seeing uh, mental health and, and disability and uh, neurodivergence uh, as, uh, you know, failures, sins, uh, something to be fixed to um, a possibility for God's glory to shine uh, through those individuals uh, and in those individuals' life. And so we're, we're, instead of looking for something to put back together in them, what do they have to teach us about God? How can we see God in their lives? And, and that was, I mean, again, it, it's right there in the text. It should be obvious. And yet those, those assumptions that the disciples had, they, they, they hang on through the years and they're, and they're still with us. And the other was a couple of stories out of Luke's gospel where, where Jesus is uh, at the table in Luke 14, he's at the table with the Pharisee. And there's, there's a man who is uh, disabled, who's brought into their midst. And Jesus recognizes that he's, he's there for nothing more than a prop to see what Jesus will do. And of course, Jesus heals him and dismisses him from the meal. And we, maybe talk about how to understand that a little bit more. But uh, then Jesus turns to the Pharisees and he, he critiques them for always seeking the places of honor and um, giving table fellowship to those who can return the gesture. Mm. Uh, and he tells uh, another parable after that about uh, you know, a king who set up a banquet and he sent out invitations to all the right people. And all the right people sent back excuses why they couldn't come. And so he, he says, you know what? Let's redo the invitation list. Go get anybody and everybody you can. Get, right. the, get the crippled, get the lame, get the blind, get the poor, get the you know, people off the alleys and streets and bring them in. And it, it, the phrase that stuck with me out of the book, he's, he said, we've built church backward mm -hmm. from that parable. And instead of going out to compel all the people who Jesus says we ought to compel to come in, we're running after the people who refuse the invitation in that parable. And so we've built our churches for uh, the, the neurotypical, for the affluent, for the, uh, those that don't have you know, any um, perceived struggle. Uh, that they're facing. We built our churches and our ministries around them instead of the other way around. And, and that hit hard. Like, you know, as, as somebody who had spent, you know, 
more than a third of my life in ministry. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. And I'm thinking about even like in some of my notes, prepping for our conversation, the church sometimes willingly and sometimes maybe subliminally leaned on business principles to build a church with the hopes that, well, if you build a successful church, then think of how much you can do for Jesus instead of realizing like, no, the, the whole point of it was to be like Jesus. And he didn't build a structure first and then figure out the people. He spent his time identifying the people. And I think that's when we find ourselves. And I mean, it's hard for me to think about that. I don't even understand my own brain to a certain extent and where, where I'm at, because I mean, I think that the reality is, is that we're not, people aren't just like more people now statistically are being diagnosed with things. I think that we've just been ignoring it. And especially in the church, we just are like, you got to push through it. You got to be strong. You got to be a good leader. And it's a spiritual thing. And we just, we've tried to build something without understanding the people that we're trying to build it for. We're building a bigger house, yeah. but we're not understanding the people that are living in it. And when you see Jesus perform these miracles, he identifies them as individuals. He knows what they yeah. really need. And mm-hmm. it's hard to think about too much. I mean, I, I need to get that book obviously because <laughs> it's been, it's been a really good read so far. Yeah. The, the, those biblical stories, when you look at it from that lens, it's yeah. I mean, how often are we, concerned with the wrong things to really understand where people are at. Yeah. I, I know one thing um, that I, I hope I've been learning to do better uh, is um, and in this whole venture is I've had to learn to, to really listen hmm. because um, I, I, I would have what is characterized as probably a neurotypical brain. I, I'm, I'm 80, I'm ADD. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so I do, I I'm do OCD. Some, All right. Let's yeah. <laughs> which letters are you? you got uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and as a child, I, I, I took Ritalin and things of that nature to help me. And I have my own coping mechanisms that I've, I've learned as an adult. And, and so, uh, I, I guess I'm neurodivergent in that aspect. It feels normal to me. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't have clue uh to the the real lived experiences uh, mm-hmm. of people who who are coming from a, a, a different way of seeing reality seeing life processing information uh relating to people and if i have any hope of, of serving well alongside um this community it, it will be because i i learned to listen mm-hmm. um and hear their stories and hear their experiences and allow them to share uh, what might truly be helpful uh, to them. And, and then to kind of restructure um, my world uh, so that they fit rather than uh, I think many times we want to restructure them to fit our world. Right. Um, and whose world are we really doing yeah. that for? Is it is it the kingdom of God or is it the Western world that we find ourselves in? That's the question right. we have to ask is yeah. whose world are we building for them? I mean, I'm thinking about what we overcomplicate what it means to be a successful follower of Jesus or a disciple of Jesus. Yes. I mean, if we just focused on the fruit of the spirit alone and then allowed people to do that within the capacity that their toolkit allows them to. Yeah then we would have the time to learn about how we can help them do that instead of helping them become something that they're not able to be or even meant right. to be. Right. I, I'm so glad you said that, Ben, um, because that was, that was one of the hard things for Sarah and I in pastoral ministry is just the expectation of what does a good pastoral family look like? Mm-hmm. And specifically, what can a good pastor's wife or should a good pastor's wife be doing? Uh, whether that means like leading the children's ministry or teaching a Sunday school class or hosting like a, a women's Bible study or, you know, whatever, right? Um, you know, expectation the community has. Uh, when we could no longer fit that, uh, we felt like um, 
bad pastor's family. <laughs> and, um, you know, whether that be something as simple as stand up and shake the hand of your neighbor next to you uh, yeah. on Sunday morning, and you've got social anxiety that's, you know, already through the roof because you're in a room full of a uh, 100 people sitting next to each other, and you've got a little bit of sensory overload from the loud music, and now we need to, like, jump and be an extrovert. <laughs> mm-hmm. And with and, five you know, kids in tow that I'm sure with five with their kids. own complications. Yeah. Right. And then going home from church saying, did I, did I shake enough people's hands? Did, mm. did I give a hug to the right people and feeling like a failure? Yeah. And, and again, we, we had a great church, very supportive. And I'm not like, it's like you said, we don't understand our own brains well enough, out alone one another's. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a challenge to build a, a community with these things in mind. Yeah. And I know, like you said, you're still learning and I'm still learning, but what are maybe some words of encouragement, but also maybe some words of conviction that you can share with us to combat maybe the, the things that we've gotten wrong when it comes to people in this situation? Like, so like some, some misconceptions that I can think of right off the top of my head are you don't need medicine for your brain. You just need to, again, pray more, read more scripture. So medicine for mental health is somehow wrong or the world's way of dealing with things. But then also you run into things of is mental health, a evil spirit. And I mean, I know that sounds, I know that sounds out there, but we, we believe those things, whether it be explicitly or sometimes subtly. Mm -hmm. So like what, what words of encouragement could you have based on your lived experience for people who are confused by this? Yeah. Um, I would start with just saying that um, don't uh, check your check your assumptions at the door, probably more than anything else. Before you make an assumption, um, talk to the person uh, or talk to the people and, and ask them. Um, don't uh, project um, your uh, image of what is the good. Christian life onto others. Um, I, as, I mean, I, I'll just confess, I'm, I'm extroverted, probably, you know, dampered a little bit over, you know, 20 years of living with an introvert, uh, maybe not as much as I used to be, but still consider myself an extrovert and um, would project onto Sarah expectations of, well, a good Christian, you know, is always ready to go to, you know, dinner at someone's house because that's what good Christians do and uh, not making space for, you know, her battery is recharged in a different way than my battery. So, you know, socially and emotionally and what might leave me feeling uh, refreshed at the end of the evening might leave her feeling like she needs like two days of downtime Mm -hmm. uh, to recover from. And so, um, you know, that would, that would be my first thing. It's just, you know, check, check your assumptions and check your expectations at the door and just recognize that uh, there's enough space in the kingdom for both of us to um, shine uh, in ministry in our own ways. And, and I think that that's true for, uh, you know, the disability community as well as mm-hmm. the mental health community, um, that there, there is a uniqueness to every one of us, and each one of us bear the image of God. And so within the context of who we are as individuals, um, we can reflect that image out into the world. And, and in some ways, might be able to do it better than, than I can um, with the limitations of my normalness, if you mm-hmm. will. Uh, and so uh, I like the phrase otherly able. I, I don't know if that's uh, necessarily the correct phrase to use uh, in all contexts. I've heard, heard that battered around in the disability theology and disability community. It reminds me that I also have limitations mm-hmm. when, I, when I think in terms of otherly able, that they have abilities that I don't have. I have abilities that they may not have, and we both have limitations. Um, so that's helpful kind of reframe it for me. Uh, in the church, I would, I would say we can do 
a better job planning for people to be there rather than just inviting people to be there. Um, And I guess an illustration of that would be uh, when I was early in youth ministry, I was at a church that was doing a building renovation program and I was getting paid peanuts as most youth pastors do. (laughs) But uh, they, the, the committee building committee decided to put in an elevator um in in this old 200 year old church as part of the renovation at the time as a 20 something year old uh i saw that as such a waste hmm. that we would be spending thirty thousand dollars to put in an elevator uh when you could use a ramp uh or a lift chair and and again i was young i was foolish i was immature i was i was ignorant uh I wish more churches would think of something like that because uh, I, you know, we had a family in our church in Mattoon that uh, they, uh, their children were born prematurely, prematurely. Uh, one of their kids had, you know, severe mobility uh, issues, uh, disability. And uh, when he was, you know, three, four years old, it was easy to carry him down to his Sunday school class. Uh, as he got older, and bigger to carry him down, carry a wheelchair down, and carry it back up. It's like, um, do we plan for people to be in our churches? Mm-hmm. Um, otherly abled, disabled people, do we expect for them to be in, the, in those spaces? Uh, I have yet to be, I've served in six different churches. I have yet to be in a church that has uh, handicap accessibility to the stage. And I'm ashamed to say that I didn't think about that until the last six months. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I'm looking back in judgment, you know? Right, right. Um, it's only been in the last six months that I've started like listening to podcasts and stories and things of that nature, just kind of thinking differently that somebody said, um, you know, from the disability community, I was invited to speak. I, I couldn't go on stage. They had to bring a microphone down to me. And, and what does that say? We, we don't expect you to be on stage. Um, so there's things like that. Um, there's little things that don't cost maybe thousands of dollars in renovations, like right. um, training your people to be comfortable when a kid is loud or squirrely. I mean, right. I, I serve all kinds of kids who uh, cannot sit still, not, not don't want to, not, aren't misbehaving, you know, and just being bad children. They cannot sit still um, while we have our discussions and, and practice our, you know, um, skill building exercises. They, 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 they move, they, they roll, Mm -hmm. uh, they, you know, that, you know, um, Lamar says, you know, church people are good at identifying bad behavior, yeah. sadly. And, and so redefining that behavior from, from bad to just, uh, divergent from, from what is difficult. Or even just and seeing ex- it as a, seeing it as an opportunity. And I've, I'm just, yeah. <laughs> as I'm being washed with conviction and guilt, as you're talking, <laughs> I just think about gosh, we, we just look at everything. I look at everything as a distraction and how that's so dehumanizing and how that's so taking away the image of God from people and realizing that it's not a distraction. It's an opportunity to love them, but it's because what are the real goals? Because maybe for that child or that person, and even when with my own kids in my own life, like when, is it a distraction or is it really just me not getting the end result that I want yeah. instead of realizing what does God want as a result here? Maybe it's, maybe it doesn't meet my expectations, but my expectations are probably wrong. Yeah. And it's yeah. so hard to get our selfishness out of the way. It is. It is. And, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't want to guilt anybody. I don't know that it was selfishness yeah. as much as it was just ignorance. Yeah. Uh, uh, I just, uh, I couldn't see uh, what I wasn't aware of. 
and, and uh, you know, experiences, proximity has changed that a lot mm-hmm. for me um, and continues to change that a lot for me. Uh, just being in proximity to people's lived experiences and, and trying to um, look through their eyes, how they see the world, understand the world the way they understand it. Um, and, you know, the church, I think, is uniquely positioned to um, respond to that. Uh, if we can, if we can stop, if we can stop ourselves from, um, how do I want to say this? We, we have a tendency to evaluate um, programs and initiatives based on the return on investment. Uh, going back to your your comment about the business world, right? And and I and I again I don't want to dogpile the church because I, I pastored for long enough to know that the pressures of having staff salaries and building maintenance and uh, those kind of things they're real. It does cost money to right. to run a church. It just does, you know. And so, uh, but if we're not careful. I think we can allow the maybe good and right and appropriate um, desire to raise funds to support ministry to um, inadvertently and maybe unknowingly shape the way we evaluate people mm-hmm. um, and go after people. Right. And, 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 and in reality, like the kingdom reality is that those kind of distinctions uh, are, are meant to be erased in our common human experience so that all are welcome and all are desired and all are included right. uh, at the table of the Lord. And um, there's a reason you know, why so, his kingdom is, is the upside down kingdom because right. the means are not people to get to the ends of success. Yeah. The ends are the people. So all of our means yes. have to be for people. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Exactly. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So I know you only have a little bit of time because obviously you have a work day that you're looking forward to. And I appreciate your extra time this morning, but can you share a little snapshot of what heart to heart does? And uh, I see a board behind you that obviously is just learning about the brain and learning about how to to see ourselves and see the world around us. Tell us a little bit about what you do. Yeah. So heart to heart, uh, they offer two primary services to our clients and, uh, uh, we serve kids ages two to 17, uh, with any kind of emotional behavioral disability. So, um, on the autism spectrum downs, uh, ADHD, uh, trauma, OCD, defiant disorder, you know, whatever kind of emotional behavior, behavioral diagnosis that's there. Uh, we provide respite care for families, and so they can uh, parents can bring their children in uh, and um, get a break to recharge and refuel. I mean, as as a parent of special needs children, uh, that that's important to have. You know, to have someone that can mm-hmm. can watch your child so that uh, you can maybe grocery shop in in the time that you have available on that day. Uh, someone or, that can watch your child yeah. that knows what your child right. is going through. So they don't return your child going, Hey, they were this and yeah. this and this. Yes. And, and, and I hear so many stories, um, of, of families that like, I can't take my kid to I, my, my uncle won't watch my kid anymore because, you know, they acted out in this way and they just don't understand, or mm-hmm. I can't get my child into daycare because they get kicked out of every daycare, uh, when they're disruptive. Uh, and, and so, yeah, a place where, uh, kids are going to be met with compassion and understanding and patience, um, and, and parents can feel, uh, secure and trusting their kids with us. Uh, so that's the respite end of things. Uh, the other aspect is uh, what's called community living support. And that is working with, uh, these children toward goals. Uh, so their goal might be emotional regulation. And just learning skills to um, calm the the storm that's going on in their mind, uh, you know, or respond 
uh, to sensory overload. Uh, it might be they might have a socialization goal, so learning to you know uh, address people by their name and, and respond to quite. I mean, so all all across the spectrum because all these kids come in different places, uh, all the way up to learning skills to help them uh, achieve independence, like uh, how to how to prepare a meal, how mm. to uh, make a budget, um, you know, how to how to grocery shop or or something of that nature. Um, appropriate self-care uh you know uh, hygiene i mean it's, it's it's really across the board but uh we we work with these children toward their goals uh with uh group-based center-based uh therapy and and skill building exercises to help them thrive so that they can uh, go back into the schools and uh into the you know ultimately into the workplace or into their home environment and and they will be better equipped to um, process uh, their their lived experience, and and I think that that's one piece of a larger puzzle. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the larger puzzle is these other places, whether it be school or church or the workplace, um, accommodating to the different ways in which people experience life and process life, and um, and and that's happening too, you know. Whether it's teachers that have a basket of fidget toys, you know, on their desks for mm -hmm. a kid that has sensory uh, processing issues to be able to do that, or allowing them to wear headphones, or having you know, like there's simple ways that we can accommodate um, our experience to theirs. Yeah, uh, and, and I think that's just as much needed as helping them to cope with their experience to fit into to our world that it, it's got to be a both hand. Yeah. Seeing it as an accommodation and not a weakness yeah. and not a, right. A problem to fix. Yeah. But, well, I know, you know, this you're, you're doing the Lord's work. It might yeah. not be in a church building. It's you are ministering. You are a part of that redeeming creation, yeah. understanding creation. Yeah. So, I mean, you're just as much, doing church work as anyone yeah. else. And I think that I hope that this is an encouragement to anybody listening that doesn't matter if you're a construction worker, doesn't matter if you're a janitor, doesn't matter if you're a teacher, we have people around us and I guess just assess our goals. Yeah. Our goal isn't to yeah. become the perfect church person. Our goal is to, to learn how to love people and to learn how to understand people. And if, if that was everybody's focus, I feel like we would recognize our differences as being something not to overcome, but just something to understand and to, to grow. Absolutely. Absolutely. This was uh, maybe not as many laughs in this episode, but I feel like we, I feel like we had a good conversation. Thank you so much for your time. I know that it's now 10 o'clock your time. So your, your shift yeah. officially begins, but thank you so much for this. Um, yeah, it was a hope, pleasure. Hope we can connect more. Um, and yeah, just keep doing what you guys are doing. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your perspective. And maybe along the way, we can try to get some resources from you guys. Because I, as, as far as I know, there's not much here as far as yeah. that kind of respite care, or even just understanding, like, I'm going to check out those books so we can continue yeah. to learn. So just thank you for your time. And thank you for the conversation. Another great book would be Faith on the Spectrum. That's another, another great okay. book. Um, and then I would say that, you know, as far as resources, we found in every city that Heart to Heart has gone to, it's now in three cities, that there's just an overwhelming need. Mm -hmm. And one of the really neat things is this is not a capital intensive business to get into. Um, and, uh, and so right now we work exclusively with Medicaid patients through our community mental health organization. Okay. And... Uh, we've been in operation for six months, and we will probably be, be full to capacity in our location by the end of this year. Mm -hmm. um, there's just such a need for resources for families that if there's someone in your listening audience that has like a, a heart for you know, the disability community and uh, you know uh, an interest and in, in you know a small business owner or something like that. And, and they wanted to reach out, I'd be happy to like talk with them about that, connect them with their owner. Um, we were the, as far as I know, the first kind of our organization in the state of Michigan. So, okay, uh, yeah, 
it, yeah. it would be a great way for someone to serve outside the walls. Yeah. And just continue to build the kingdom in a, in a different Avenue. So awesome. Thank you. Appreciate that extra insight. Yep. Um, yeah, we'll talk again soon. All right. And Thanks, we man. will talk to all of you next week. Um, if you're a part of our congregation, we'll see you all Sunday. So enjoy you the rest of your week. Thanks for listening. The Real Life Roundtable is a production of Real Life Community Church in Portage, Indiana. For more information, follow us at RLCC Life on Facebook or visit reallifecc.org.